As we come here to Revelation chapter 7, this is known as a parenthetical statement. If you needed an SAT word of the day, there you go, right? Parenthetical statement. And that is, I don't know if there's any of you that are movie buffs here. Anybody like movies? A lot. A handful of you. The rest of you are trying to seem very holy. You don't watch any movies or anything like that. But sometimes a movie begins and they just throw you right into an action scene. Someone's falling off a cliff. A car accident is happening and you're wondering what's happening. And then you hear this voiceover, right? If you're wondering how I got here, right? Or it all started with, and then all of a sudden you're transported to another time in this person's life. And it shows you how they got to this point where this chaos is ensuing. And here in chapter 7, we are given one of these pauses, one of these parentheses to reveal to us and show us what has been transpiring perhaps before or during the great tribulation and the chaos and the carnage of chapter 6. If you remember in chapter 6, right, we had the four horsemen of the apocalypse come upon the earth. We also had all of this carnage, this destruction, this widespread death, and all of this just chaos happening. And here in chapter 7, we're given a break before the wrath of God continues. And there's a theme from Genesis to Revelation how God, He seals and He protects His people before He pours out His wrath. One last thing for us to know and realize that as God is allowing wrath to be poured out on the world during this great tribulation, it's not just that God is coming out swinging and pouring out His wrath on the whole world. But truly, it's God slowly but surely peeling away His blessings and His goodness upon this earth. You see, there's many people that we think that our life is good because of what we've done, our hard work, and all of our savviness. But each and every one of us, believer and unbeliever, we taste of the blessings and the goodness of God on a daily basis. But there's going to come a time, and each of us, perhaps you've gone there, where you pass that line in the sand. If you're reading the Bible together with us, we just went through the life of Samson. And Samson's sin caught up with him, and he passed that line in the sand where God's blessing was no longer on his life. And he tasted of the wages of his sin, and the wages of every sin is death. And maybe you're here, and you're going through difficulty, you're going through a season of chaos, and it's because of your own sins, but more often than not, what do we do? We turn our fist at God, and we say, God, how could you allow this to happen, right? We don't look at our whole life's work. We don't look at all the wages of sin. We don't look at all of our poor decisions and blame it on ourselves and our decision making. We turn and blame it on God. All of this to say we cannot be living a life of habitual sin and expect the blessings of God. Sooner or later, those blessings will be ripped away slowly but surely. And in the book of Revelation, that's exactly what's happening. God is peeling away his blessings upon this planet one by one. But there in verse 1, it says, After these things, that's that Greek word once again, metatauta, it says, After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Here we're given a figure of speech that we use even till today, right? The four corners of the earth. Some people say the four points of the compass. And I think we don't have to explain this, but just in case, right, we all realize this is a figure of speech. God is not a flat earther whatsoever, right? <laughs> There's some people that have given into that. There's some people even within churches saying, oh, it's a sphere, but it's flat and all sorts of ridiculousness, right? Don't waste your time arguing with people that say that the Bible speaks of a flat earth or anything near that. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, do not argue with a fool lest they bring you down to their level, and there they defeat you with their experience. <laughs> so again, if you have someone, they're trying to come at you with the Bible means this, or they're tricking you, and there's the, just take a step back. Isaiah 40, verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
And again, if you don't know anyone like this, man, God bless you. You're in a good life. But every once in a while we mention TikTok theology or Instagram theology. And there are those pages uh, that speak of flat earth and all of this ridiculousness. We have these four angels spread across the earth, right? Four corners of the earth, a figure of speech. And they are holding back the four winds of the earth. That the wind would not blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. This perhaps could be a reference to the four horsemen that we looked at at the beginning of chapter 6. And throughout the book of Revelation, we will see wrath and chaos ensue with fours, right? Four horsemen and different things like that. In a realistic aspect, if all the wind would stop on planet Earth, the effects on our planet would be catastrophic. Not just for people that love kites, not just for windsurfers, but for the temperature... The weather, talk about rain, it would sort of stop and it would only rain in the same places over and over again. The smog, the air quality, cities, just chaos would ensue and many other natural processes that allow life to function in an optimal way on this planet would end. This, in a sense, is the true climate change that some people are talking about. That will happen in the book of Revelation. But in verse 2, we see another angel ascending from the east. So much of the Bible has to do with orientation to the east or to the temple of God. And this angel has the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now we've spoken about what a seal is at length, right? It's not someone in the Navy. Uh, It's not a cute animal that claps and makes noises and eats fish, right? That's not what the seal is talking about. But a seal was a wax dripping that would happen on a scroll or perhaps some of the people getting engaged, some of the people getting married, right? You send those wedding invitations and they're extra fancy. So you put some drops of wax and then you get a signet ring and you impress that upon there and it seals that document. And the idea of a seal throughout the Bible has to do with signs of ownership. It has to do with protection. And it has to do with authenticity. You see, this seal reveals that God has ownership over these people. God is going to protect these people. And that these are the authentic people of God. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. And Revelation 14 is a correlating scripture here. To these people who are being sealed, later on we'll look at it, the 144,000 people during the tribulation that will come out of it. But Revelation 14 verse 1, he says, Then I look and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So this seal upon them has something to do with the name of God written on their foreheads. We don't know if that's literal or just spirit. But verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God." So what we're going to see here in a moment is that at some point in the tribulation, God is going to seal these 144,000 people and protect them during the tribulation. We know that during the tribulation, there's going to be something known as the mark of the beast. People will have to take a mark of worship on their right hand or on their forehead. It'll be 666. And this mark of worship is the only way you could buy or sell food. Within the last two years, we've had to deal with places that won't let you in unless they check your temperature or certain cities unless you're vaccinated or show papers or have a mask or show whatever the case may be. During the Great Tribulation, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you will not be allowed to buy or sell 
anything. And this whole idea of God sealing a people before he pours out his wrath, it's found from Genesis to Revelation. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, this is before God pours out wrath on the city of Jerusalem. It says, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after them through the city and kill and do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. So God sends someone to go first and seal anyone whose heart breaks upon the abominations and sins that are transpiring within the city of Jerusalem. You could think of Noah and his family, how before the flood and the judgment of God upon the earth, God seals Noah and his family in the ark before the wrath of God is poured out. In Exodus chapter 12, before God executes the 10th plague on Egypt, the 10th right taste of God's judgment upon Egypt, he instructs the people of Israel to take the blood of a perfect lamb and put it upon their doorposts. And there in Exodus 12 verse 13, he says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Another instance in the book of Joshua is a woman by the name of Rahab. And Rahab, she wasn't, she wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't Jewish by descent, but she trusted and believed in the God of the Bible. So when Israel sends two spies into Jericho, she hides them and protects them. And then she begs them to not kill her or her family when God's judgment is poured out on Jericho. And Joshua, the two, the two spies instructor. And Joshua chapter 2, verse 18, to put a linen, a, a line of a scarlet cord on the window to let the people know that they're in that house. And then the two spies say, whoever's in that house will be protected and their blood will be upon our head. But whoever of your family is not in that house, their blood will be upon their own head. Again, a mark, a seal, a line of protection before God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. And it's not just for the Israelites or the Jewish people. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, we see this theme from Genesis to Revelation. And there in Ephesians chapter 1, we see another group that God loves. Right? His bride, his church. And there in Ephesians chapter 1, we are also given a seal, a protection, and a guarantee to make sure that we are not appointed to the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. I don't, you, I don't know if you see there what transpires. First, they have to hear the word of truth. Then they trust in Jesus, the gospel, the good news of our salvation, in whom we've believed and once we've heard, once we trust, once we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Again, it has nothing to do with our good works. It has nothing to do with us being better than the person next to us or paying a certain amount or these uh, imaginary scales that we make up in our mind that we're better or we're good enough to get into heaven. It all has to do with God's grace, our faith in God's grace, and our faith in Jesus alone saving us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, similar idea. Paul says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Some people, they struggle with, man, am I saved or am I not saved, right? Today I did good. Today I read my Bible. I went to church, so I'm saved, right? Tomorrow I argue with my wife, man, am I saved, right? There's some people that they go through that. 
The idea here, the truth of God's word is that if we believe with our heart, right, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are saved and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we are not appointed to the wrath of God, just as we've seen throughout the Old Testament. We've read this often going through the book of Revelation, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. It tells us, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a true Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit. But not only are we sealed with the Holy Spirit, but we will be fleeing from sin. Let me say that again. A true Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit and is actively fleeing away from sin. It's a great question for us to ask ourselves. Number one, am I truly saved? And number two, am I actively running away from sin? Because this is the mark of a true believer. There is something also very important here. There's some people that, there's some believers, right, that they just really like the idea of having to go through the great tribulation. I don't know why, right? Maybe they really like zombie movies and stuff like that. They want to see if they got what it takes. But there's also other believers that for whatever reason, they really like demons. And they really want to mess with demons. They really want to go do the demon ministry. I want nothing to do with the demon ministry, right? The one time we see the demon ministry in the book of Acts, the people are running out of the house naked and beat up. So I want nothing to do with the demon ministry, right? When that day comes, the Lord will fill us and will go at it in the name of the Lord Jesus. However, if you are a believer, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So a demon is not going to come inside of you and take over you. You may have the oppression. You may be in a place where evil is taking place or transpiring. You may be leaving away from the Holy Spirit. You can think of King Saul and there's another oppressing spirit that comes upon him because he's leaving. He's going away from the Spirit of God. But if you are truly saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to be concerned that there's a demon lurking that's going to just jump inside of you and take over your body. That's a different side note. However, right, back to what we were talking about. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4, we see this truth that if you're truly saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you will be actively leaving and fleeing away from sin. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. I did this in the first service. Let's start in verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You see, if you're saved, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but then there should be some active work going on in our hearts and in our lives. We should be putting off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking and we should be putting on kindness towards one another now the book of ephesians it's written to a church so we should be kind to the body of christ we should be kind to our enemies as well but at to the very least to the rest of the body of christ we should be tender-hearted we should be forgiving one another more and more even as god in christ has forgiven us and then finally, verse 1 of chapter 5, we are to be imitators of God. So again, there's the great balance there. If you're truly saved, you're going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, but you will be actively departing away from sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul, writing to his son in the faith, he says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you're naming the name of Christ, which is the only way to be saved, that's the only way to be saved, is to call upon the name of Christ. If you're calling upon the name of Christ, we are to actively be departing from 
sin. Right? How Hebrews tells us to lay aside every sin and weight which so easily, it easily traps us. It easily ensnares us. It easily trips us up. Jesus, he puts it to an extreme. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. The things in our lives that cause us to sin, we should have such a love and gratitude for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us that we have an utter hatred and disgust towards sin. That's what's happening in the true heart of a believer. The true believer doesn't make room for sin, doesn't use the grace of God in vain and waste it away. No, there should be an active hatred in our lives every time that sin comes up because sin put my king upon the cross. That's the mark of a true believer. And the true believer, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We go back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. Now we begin to see who are these 144,000. This portion of scripture gets taken out of context quite often, right? Who are the 144,000? I think it's pretty simple. But verse 4, chapter 7, it says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. You guys got it, man. You guys are mathematicians, right? 12 times 12,000 equals 144,000, right? So who are these 144,000? It's a group of people that God is going to have sealed for the tribulation. Some people think that it's the church, right? We talked about those people that just love the idea of having to go through the tribulation, right? So some people, they take this out of context and they say the 144,000, it's a picture of the church and how the church has to go through the tribulation and how God is going to seal them so that they can go through the tribulation and not take the mark. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that they are the 144,000 and they said that it was their group and their group alone that could be in heaven. They would say, hey, come and join us, and you could be one of the few, one of the 144,000 in heaven, limited, limited time offer, right? The only problem is that their group and their cult grew to over 144,000, so then they had to change that number then, right? So the 144,000 was for the elite, but other people can come in through them as well. Many people try to claim the 144,000, but biblically, the only explanation is that the 144,000 are Jewish converts that come to Christ during the Great Tribulation. It's not for believers. Do believers need another seal? No, we're already sealed. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. God doesn't say, hey, you got to double seal them, right? That's not what he says. Sometimes I do that with my vacuum sealer, right? Double seal. But God, he doesn't need to do that to us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what does God tell us about these 144,000? In verse 4, we read that they are of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So they come out of the tribes of Israel. We are given 12 specific tribes mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4 through 8. We just read through them. Some people, they say because there's differences in the 12 tribes, then it doesn't count. But that's not the case at all. We don't know why God includes the tribe of Levi in this list. We don't know why God calls to the tribe of Joseph in this list and he takes out the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim. We just don't know. It's okay as a believer to sometimes just say, I don't know. That's fine. That's a good thing. We know that in Revelation 14 verse 4, we read that these 144,000 are virgins during the Great Tribulation. So again, there's a problem for the church because some of us were married. We have kids, right? Others of us, we lived in sin beforehand. So these are only 144,000 people from the tribes, the 12 tribes, who are virgins. Revelation 14 verse 4, it tells us that they are the first fruits. And when you gather first fruits, 
What does that mean? What's about to happen? What's about to come? A harvest. When they would celebrate the first fruit feast, they would go and the first apple that would come off the tree, they would grab that and then they would worship the Lord. What does that mean? Later on, that tree is going to be filled with apples. So this first fruits is the first fruits of an even greater harvest that's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. Finally, Revelation 14 verse 5, it tells us that they were found without deceit, without falsehood, and without fault. So again, biblically, the only explanation is that these 144,000 are Jewish virgins that come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. And then they're going to go on to share the gospel with the whole world. Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 14. If your fingers are tired, you can stay there in Revelation if you're tired and asleep, you can stay there in Revelation. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, we're given an incredible verse here. Lots of missionaries, lots of missions, organizations, they use this verse. It's good. It's important. But within the context of the chapter, Jesus is speaking of the end of the age. He's speaking of the end of time before the tribulation, then when the tribulation hits, and then before God comes and he sets up his kingdom. But there in Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Again, this is speaking of the end of the age. That the gospel is going to be preached throughout all the world and then the end will come. Some people say, hey, we got to go speak to these Indians. They're the last people that haven't heard of Jesus. Once we do that, the rapture is going to come right away, right? That's not the case. However, we should all be about sharing the good news. We know that Jesus, before he leaves, he gives us the great commission, right? It's not the great suggestion. It's not the great idea. No, it's the great commission to go out and preach the gospel. That's our role. That's our duty as a Christian and as a believer. But the gospel is going to be preached throughout all the world, and then the end will come. We can go back to Revelation chapter 7. And here in verse 9, this is where we see this great revival that's going to take place in the middle of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That word, right, in verse 9, after these things, metatauta. So John is there. He sees these 144,000. And then he says, after this, I saw a great multitude which no one could number. This is speaking of an incredible revival that's going to happen during the Great Tribulation. And there's been some incredible revivals throughout the world. Uh, one of my friends, he's a pastor. He likes to joke around, maybe a little bit too much. But every once in a while, I say, hey, how did, how did teaching at that church go? And he'll mess around and go, oh, revival. Revival broke out, right? And revival is something that each of us, we desire. We want it. And hopefully revival first begins in our hearts and in our homes. Our pie chart of our time reveals that a revival has taken place in our homes. But revival, I, I hope for, I long for it, but we are not promised a revival before the rapture. I hope for one. I would really like one. I'd like to be a part of one, whether it's here or somewhere else. But there's great and incredible revivals that have happened. In the book of Acts, right, Peter's first Bible study, what happens? 3,000 people get saved. Talk about a great first start, right? First Bible study, 3,000 people get saved. We know about the Great Reformation, the Welsh Revival, the Moravian Movement. There was the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. In the 70s and 80s, there was something that happened in the United States and in Europe that was known as the Jesus Movement. And that's where Calvary Chapel was birthed out of that 
great revival. Today, there's a revival happening in China and in the Middle East, how their churches are growing at an incredible rate, even though there's so much hatred towards believers. However, the greatest revival that will ever happen will be during and in the midst of absolute chaos of the Great Tribulation. And to this I say, behold the love of God. Behold the love of God. You see, sometimes we get it twisted as believers and we just say, God, pour out your wrath upon this, right? We see sin, we see evil, we see un, right, injustice, and we just say, God, pour out your wrath. But we should be praying, Lord, come and save. Lord, save these people, change these people's hearts. Oftentimes we're like uh, John, right? How he and his brother, they wanted fire to be raining down from heaven. But we should be asking the Lord to save people. And this is the theme throughout the Bible that in God's wrath, he wants to see people saved. He wants to see people saved. In Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, the end of verse 2 says, In wrath, remember mercy. God, in the midst of your wrath, please remember your mercy. God, please take us out of this misery that we're in. Lord, please don't give us what we truly do deserve, that even though you're pouring out your wrath, please have mercy. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the will of God. It's not to just fry everybody up to a crisp. That's not God's heart. God's heart is that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his desire. That's his hope. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is the Apostle Paul. Again, once again, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, that's God's desire. God's desire for you here today, if you're not saved, is that you'd come up front, you'd pray that prayer, and you would abide with Him and walk with Him from here on out. Right? Sometimes we got that messed up picture in our, ha- in our head that God's up there with lightning bolts, and He's just bored. He's like, dance, right? He just starts throwing lightning bolts down at us, right? That He's just a God that wants just carnage. No, we serve a God of love. That before he pours out his wrath, he's always seeking to save as many people as possible. Some people say, how could a revival happen without the church? If the church is raptured, how could revival happen, right? Some people think that the Holy Spirit is going to be taken away from the earth, but we don't really see that in Scripture. The Holy Spirit's part of the Godhead. God, he's omnipresent. He's in all places at once. And there's no reason to suggest that the Holy Spirit's not going to be in all places at once. So how could people get saved during the tribulation? The same way we got saved, right? Faith alone, in God's grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the way we get saved. That's the way people will get saved. It's just going to cost a lot more. It's going to literally be your head on the line when this happens. You're not going to be able to eat. You're not going to be able to buy. You're not going to be able to sell. It's going to be a difficult time. How can revival happen? There's going to be many special people appear on the scene during the Great Tribulation. Once we get there in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to see two witnesses come on the scene of planet Earth. And these two witnesses, they're special men. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses or uh, uh, Elijah and Enoch. But they're going to be prophesying for three and a half years. They're going to be given from... They're going to be given power from God himself. They're going to be able to protect themselves with fire out of their mouths. That's what Revelation 11 tells us. They're going to have the power to hold back the rain. They're going to have the power to turn water into blood. They're going to be able to strike the earth with plagues. And later on, they will finally be put to death. They're going to be killed. And the world is going to have a disgust and hatred towards them that they're going to leave their dead bodies in the streets for three and a half days. Revelation 11 tells us the whole world will see them. This is before satellite TV. This is before the internet. This is before YouTube or Twitch or live streaming, right? 
says the whole world is going to see these two witnesses. And they're going to be looking at their bodies. And then after three and a half days, God's going to bring them back from the dead for all the world to see. You don't know what streaming platform is going to be happening during the Great Tribulation, right? How many likes or comment belows. But during that time, the whole world will see these two witnesses brought back from the dead. These 144,000 Jewish believers, they're going to become evangelists. It's like 144,000 Pauls being set loose upon the earth, preaching the gospel, sharing salvation. I don't know if you've ever spoken with a completed Jew, how they have such a love for the Word of God. They have such a love for Jesus Christ and for the Messiah. Finally, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, it speaks of an angel that's going to be flying around the earth preaching the gospel. An angel is going to be flying around planet earth preaching the gospel. Revelation 14, verse 6. There's some people that say that we're in the great tribulation today. There's some people that say that we're in the thousand year reign of Christ today. But I've yet to see an angel flying around Miami preaching the gospel, right? So I don't think we're anywhere near this. But as a result of the two witnesses, as a result of the 144,000, as a result of this angel, God is going to have the greatest revival take place in the midst of absolute chaos. And for some of us, that's exactly how we got saved, right? We were saved when our lives were in absolute chaos. Maybe your marriage was a wreck. Maybe you were down and you were just depressed. You were suicidal. For a lot of people during the pandemic, a lot of people, they took a, a real view of their lives, right? There's a great sifting that happened during the pandemic. There were people that said that they were believers and all of a sudden church wasn't important whatsoever, right? I could just stay at home, watch it online. It's the same thing as going to church. I know Hebrew says not to forsake the assembly of the brethren, but not during 2020, right? That doesn't have to do with today. And there's a great sifting process that happened because many of those same people are still not going to church today. However, there were also other people that with the great fear of death gripping them, with the lack of hope on television, with only doom and gloom everywhere, were able to see Christ on high. There were many people as a result of all these churches putting the teachings online came to know Jesus in the midst of chaos and carnage. And God, he just has a habit of doing that. You can think of the prodigal son, right? In the midst of absolute chaos and carnage, he's lost everything, he's blown all his money, he's feeding pigs, the pig's food is looking good, and it's there at that moment that he realizes, man, the servants in my father's house are better off than me. Maybe I'll go, I'll ask for forgiveness, and he'll let me be a servant in his house. We go back to Revelation 7, the rest of verse 9, it tells us it's a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Again, a great multitude which no one could number. Does this mean that God, he couldn't count them? No, not at all. It's just saying that there's such a great amount of people, no one person could count all of them. Then it says, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, it makes no sense. There's no rhyme or reason for racism or segregation to be in church whatsoever. And today we live with both ends of that, right? In every country, in every state, in every nation, there's different form of racism, whether it's too light or too dark. There's zero room for that in the body of Christ. Because in heaven, there's going to be all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, we're not going to just be cookie cutters of one, of, of one another. There's going to be all types of people there standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And we're going to be clothed with, right, with white robes. This reveals two things. So it's number one, we do not enter into heaven by our own righteousness, by our own works. We need to put on the robes of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That's the only way we can get into heaven. The white robes also speak of priestly duties once we get to heaven again heaven is not going to be each of us bored on our own cloud with our own harp just staring at each other for all of eternity there's going to be work to be done we're going to be about our father's business 
It says palm branches in their right hand in their hands. This speaks of the victory of Jesus Christ. How he's going to one day completely conquer sin, conquer death. He's done that, but then he's going to conquer this planet and he's going to rule and reign. You could think of Palm Sunday and how they were crying out Hosanna, putting the palm branches before him, before the donkey, thinking he was coming in to rid them from the Roman government. Finally, verse 10, it says, crying out with a loud voice, they're saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, everyone all together in unison, we're going to be singing together. The angels, the elders, that's us, the body of Christ. We have this group, 144,000. All of us singing in unison just how great our God is. Then in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? I don't know if you've ever been there as a parent. You want to ask your kid a question. So instead of you giving them the right answer, you just ask them the question instead, right? You say, hey, how does the electricity get paid? Right? You ask them that. They have no clue. It's so you could tell them how it gets paid, right? And here that's basically what one of the elders does to John. He turns to John and says, hey, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? John says, sir, you know. I don't know, but you know. And he said to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So again, it's, it's, it's Jewish believers that are sealed and they come out of the great tribulation. One incredible thing we see here is that they are washing their robes and they make them white in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know if you've ever gotten a blood stain on a shirt. Do you get it out by dipping it in more blood? Right? You say, yeah, let me go to the butcher and just wash this thing out and it'll come out white. No. But our sins, the only way we can wash our sins away, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the whole world, all of humanity, we look for different ways to cover our sins. We look for different ways to wash our sins. We look for different ways to live with the guilt of our sin and our shame. We try to do more good. We try to serve, we try to feed the homeless, we try to help the orphans, we try to serve at church, and maybe that will help me cover up my sin, but that will not happen. Sometimes we try to change the definition of sin. We try to look holier than we really are. We try to make other people look more unholy than they really are, but none of that can cover or wash away our sins. It's only in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can be freed from this guilt. Be freed from our shame. Be freed from the separation from God. Verse 15 says, they are before, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Again, what makes heaven heaven is that we are dwelling with God, and God is dwelling with us. What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is dwelling with us. It's not just that there's no more hunger or pain as we're about to see, but it's that one day we will actually be in the complete presence of God. Every once in a while we get a little taste of that. I think during the end of our worship set, right, we got a little taste of that, just wanting to continue and worship God and not stop, just keep singing, and God's presence was here. Uh, sometimes with the youth camp, there's a certain night when God's Spirit just sort of gets poured out and you have all of these 6th through 12th graders just singing to God, crying, weeping. God is touching them and no one wants to leave. Everyone just wants to stay in that room because God's presence is there. But one day it won't just be a taste. It won't just be one night. But it'll be for the rest of eternity. We will be in the presence of God. And friend, that's what makes heaven heaven. That's why I don't get it. If you don't like church, you don't like the Bible, you don't like God, why do you want to be in heaven, right? You're going to be stuck with us. You're going to be stuck with God. You're going to be stuck with his word. Finally, verse 16 and 17, it says, They shall neither hunger anymore, 
nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, what a day. No more hunger, no more thirst, right? No more sunburn. Some of us, we, we want that more than others, right? But no more tears. No more tears. No more shame. No more guilt. No more pain. No more sin. Again, what will heaven be like? And here we see this incredible picture of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, we've seen him gone from the lion to the lamb. And now we're going to see a lamb go and become a shepherd, right? He's going to shepherd us and he's going to lead us to living fountains of water. Again, it's been said all of life is about finding the right master. All of life, it's about finding the right shepherd. And there's only one master and one shepherd that can lead you to living fountains of water. It's only Jesus. Right? How he tells the woman at the well, if you drink from the water I have, you will never thirst again. And from inside of you, there will be a well of water, right? The Holy Spirit flowing and gushing out of you. So not only will we not have to go through the sin and shame and difficulties of this world, but we will be there with our King. And He will continue to lead us, continue to wipe away, right? Only God's handkerchief could wipe away every tear from our eyes for all of eternity. Let's go to Psalm 23. And I think it's such a great psalm, not only for this life, but how it goes from this life and it literally takes us into the next. Because God, right, Jesus, is going to continue to shepherd us through the rest of eternity. He's going to continue to lead us, continue to rule and reign. That's why a Christian, right, a true Christian is literally making his kingdom come on earth as it is on heaven. That, that prayer sounds familiar, right? That's our job. We're saying, Jesus, you rule and reign in my life today. I know you're going to be ruling and reigning for all of eternity in heaven and with the kingdom you're going to establish later on. But God, today, I want you to rule and reign in my life. God, today, I'm going to bow the knee and confess you as Lord and Savior. I know everyone's going to have to bow and confess that you are Lord one day. But God, today, I do that in faith. But Psalm 23, verse 1 through 6 Says the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, this is not just a psalm for today, but this will be a psalm for all of eternity that we, those true believers, we will be dwelling in God's house for all of eternity. In God's house, no crying, no tears, no more weeping, right? In the midst of chaos, our God wants to save. That's just the way it is. Worship team, you can come up if you're ready. Pastors, you could be getting ready. And maybe you're here this, this afternoon and you're going through a season of chaos. Maybe your marriage right now is chaotic. Maybe it's your work environment, your friendships. Maybe it's your mind. You're going through so much anxiety and fear and depression. You're just in the midst of absolute chaos. I encourage you, don't turn away from God. Don't grow bitter towards God, but press into him. Perhaps he's allowing the chaos to ensue so you can see him. You can see what life's all about and you can cry out to Jesus saying, Jesus, please save me. The other big question for us today is, hey, if you're here and you're saying you're a believer, are you actively departing from sin more and more each day? 
Are you actively departing from sin? Or are you just saying you're a Christian but living just like this world? Saying you're a Christian but you're just making excuses for sin. You're joking about it. You're laughing about it. Again, a true believer has such a disgust and hatred towards sin because sin is what put my king upon the cross. Sin is what put my king to death. So how could we laugh at it? How could we joke about it? How could we make more and more room for it in our lives instead of actively departing from it? Actively laying aside every sin and every way, cutting off whatever hand and whatever eye causes us to stumble. Again, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Believer, are we growing in kindness and forgiveness every day? Are we growing in laying aside bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking, right? How the law, it was just about our outward actions. I think you could mumble whatever you wanted to yourself, right? You could think whatever you wanted in your mind and heart. But how Jesus, he takes it to a whole nother level. It's not just what we do on the outside, but it's what are we murmuring? What are we saying behind closed doors? What are we saying to the people that we're comfortable enough to be real with? And finally, what's going on in our heart? If the Holy Spirit's inside of us, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's going to convict us each time. He's going to comfort us when we go through those freakouts. Am I really saved or not? The Holy Spirit's going to comfort you, but he's going to convict you as well. So hey, as we close in this last song, let's all stand. Pastors, they're going to be up front. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. You're going through a season of chaos. Man, come up front. Just talk with one of the pastors. Or maybe you hear you've said you're a Christian for years, but you've just actively been making room for sin or making excuse for sin. Man, make today the day we say, from here on out, I am actively departing away from iniquity. So Lord, we just love you, God. And God, we thank you how you remember mercy in the midst of your wrath, God. Even in a nation, Lord, where I think you're peeling away your blessings one by one, God. Lord, I pray that we would come to you, Lord. We wouldn't grow bitter, Lord. We wouldn't grow cold, God. We wouldn't grow apathetic, Lord. But Lord, today we'd cry out to you, come save us, God. Come save us, Jesus. It's only by your blood. Your blood is the only thing that can wash away this guilt and this shame. The only thing that can wash away our sins. So Lord, I just pray if anyone is here and they're in that season of chaos, Lord, may they just come to you. May they lay their burdens at your feet, Lord, knowing that your yoke is easy and light. So, Lord, move in us, God. Help us to not grow bitter, Lord. Help us to continue to grow in our love for you and for one another, Lord. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.